Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Corinne Pettit, and I'm here today to talk about the AAD MPF guidelines of care for the management and treatment of psoriasis in pediatric patients with Dr. Lara Winley, who is the Director of Pediatric Dermatology at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Winley's clinical interests include general pediatric dermatology with a special interest in pediatric psoriasis, genetic skin disorders, hemangiomas, which is a type of birthmark, and vascular anomalies. Dr. Winley is a professional member of the National Psoriasis Foundation and a member of the American Academy of Dermatology, American Academy of Pediatrics, and the Society of Pediatric Dermatology, where she serves on the Patient and Practice Advocacy Committee. Dr. Winley is a long-standing volunteer with the Foundation and has provided other presentations for NPF about pediatric care, which makes her the ideal physician to discuss the pediatric guidelines for psoriasis today. All right, well, welcome, Dr. Winley. It's a pleasure having you on Soundbites today. The American Academy of Dermatology and the National Psoriasis Foundation Guidelines for Care of the Management and Treatment of Psoriasis in Pediatric Patients were released in November of 2019. What's the significance of these guidelines for youth who have the disease, their families, and their healthcare providers? These guidelines, I have to say, I'm very excited about, uh, as you mentioned, being the first effort uh, to really comprehensively discuss uh, both the disease in pediatric psoriasis as well as comorbidities and treatment. I think the impact is is broad. So in terms of healthcare providers, there are many providers out there, uh, not just dermatologists, but primary care providers as well, that see pediatric patients with psoriasis and their dermatologists and the pediatric dermatologists and all have a piece of caring for these patients. This guideline has a little bit of information for everyone and really gives you a comprehensive overview from understanding the disease to how to treat the disease that can be useful for any healthcare provider. So the impact to our patients and their families is huge. So first of all, I think everybody should be really excited about all of the information um, that is provided in here from the thought leaders in the field, from the experts in the field, and just the reassurance to the patients and the families that we know a lot about this disease, we know how to treatment, and the future is really bright, that we have really important information that is coming out, there's a lot of studies being done, and that this document is going to be out there so that their providers, the people that they see in their community, will have a great resource in helping them. So how many children are impacted by psoriasis, and when does onset typically occur? Is it true that one-third of psoriasis cases begin in the pediatric years? So let me start with the first part of that. Uh, Who does this disease impact? So psoriasis is really an equal opportunity skin disease. We have patients that start in infancy and then really throughout their lifetimes. You can have psoriasis at any age. You can have onset at any age. We think uh, that there are some peaks of disease and in the pediatric population, we seem to be more onset of new disease in teenagers, but again, really can occur at any time. The estimates right now in the population is about 1% of the pediatric population is affected by psoriasis. I personally think that that number might be a little bit low. Many
many patients will relate to you their experience of having gone misdiagnosed for a number of years or going undiagnosed for a number of years, but in general about 1%, making it a relatively common disease. In terms of the one-third of cases beginning in the pediatric years, so when you ask an adult patient, when you look back with the adult patients, many of them will say they had onset of disease in the pediatric years. That doesn't give a lot of information about how the disease has changed over time necessarily, but there are some manifestations of psoriasis in about a third of adult patients that had started in their childhood. Great. And so what are some typical triggers for psoriasis in children and teens? So pediatric psoriasis, as with psoriasis in adults as well, is a very, very complex disease. We think that the factors that lead to the development of psoriasis are very multifactorial, but in general, we think there's some genetic factors, environmental factors, and personal factors. I think the triggers are really different from patient to patient, and actually may change with age as well. So for instance, what may trigger either new onset disease or disease flare in a younger child may be really different than in the teenage years. Some big ones, though, that we think about, so infections. Um, Childhood is full of different types of infections, and very well well-known um, link between particularly uh, streptococcal bacterial infections and the onset of psoriasis in pediatric patients, uh, although any infection, viral infections, um, and really kind of any stress on the body. And when we think about stress, I think this is a really important link uh, to think about as a trigger and also to just to understand, both for yourself potentially as the caregiver of a patient with psoriasis or as a provider for somebody caring for patients with psoriasis, stress comes in many forms. So there's physical stress, such as illnesses, but mental and emotional stress tends to show up as something that can trigger new onset disease and flare known disease as well. Triggers versus associations is another way to think about it. So there's some growing information and a lot of research being done into what type of child or what are some of the factors that we can look at. And this goes to sort of the personal factors um, that may predict onset of psoriasis or at least is more common in patients with psoriasis. And some of those associations that are well highlighted in these guidelines include pediatric patients that are overweight or obese. That might actually precede the development of psoriasis uh, in a patient that then is predisposed or prone to get psoriasis later on. Gut tape psoriasis is often associated with strep. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, so that's called, it's like antigenic mimicry is the reason. So basically, there is something in the way your body responds to strep and the immune cascade that it sets off in the response to strep that kind of crosses over with the formation of psoriasis. So it probably is a really direct immunologic link. Very interesting. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true when you have patients that, they get their strep infection, they flare. Mm-hmm. You have some patients get their strep infection, they get new onset disease, and then you treat the strep, and actually the disease just gets better. That's so odd. This, you know, along these same lines of psoriasis being a very complex disease, uh, we know that it's chronic and multi-system and inflammatory. Is the risk for comorbidities something parents should be aware of? And if so, what types of comorbidities are common in children with psoriasis? So 
absolutely something that parents need to be aware of, that healthcare providers need to be aware of, uh, that really anybody caring for a patient with psoriasis, whether you're on the caregiver side or whether you're on the medical side, really needs to think about. Um, so there's some really well-founded links, for instance, arthritis, so psoriatic arthritis. While this is a more common association in adults, there are a percentage of children that have joint inflammation and joint swelling with their psoriasis, and that would potentially change our treatment, so it's very important to recognize. The interesting thing also about arthritis is that the arthritis may precede the onset of the cutaneous disease, so a child could have the arthritis piece of it, and it could be years later that then they're diagnosed with psoriasis, and then we start putting the whole picture together and be able to relate the two. And one of the other really important associations is metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is a group of findings together in one patient that includes uh, hypertension, so elevated blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, which is elevated cholesterol and other blood lipids, and insulin resistance in um, a clinically important form, for instance, can lead to diabetes. So we know that in um, pediatric patients with psoriasis, there is an increase in this group of symptoms that involve metabolic syndrome and also an increase in obesity and overweight pediatric patients. The direct link or why that is the case we don't fully understand, that's a really important consideration for parents to think about and also to make sure that kids are getting the right treatment and the right screening for those problems as well. There is in adults a very well-founded risk of um, psoriasis and cardiovascular disease, and that's talked a lot about adult psoriatic patients. That risk is uh, not as well linked in pediatrics and is really an area where we have a lot of research that's coming down the pike. It's important, though, to think about because we want to make sure that we're making our kids healthy uh, and that any other additional factors that may contribute to the cardiovascular risk, such as the metabolic syndrome, is looked at and is thought about so we can do a lot of prevention in this age group as well. One of the other categories of disease that we do see in patients with psoriasis at a higher frequency, although a little bit overall of a rare disease, is inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And so you mentioned psoriatic arthritis. Uh, how prevalent is that in youth? And what are some typical symptoms parents or healthcare providers should watch for? So in the pediatric psoriasis population, there is varying estimates of the prevalence, but in some age groups, as much as 0.7%, although uh, as we get a little bit older, that goes up to about 1.2% of the patients with psoriasis. So with psoriatic skin disease, up to 6 to 8% of May develop or actually at the presentation of their psoriasis have inflammatory arthritis that is consistent with psoriatic arthritis. This can look like many different things in different patients. So the strict kind of definition of inflammatory arthritis is joint pain and swelling. And this can happen in different joints all over the body. It can happen um, in multiple joints at one time or sometimes it can be localized to the same joint. The recognition of inflammatory arthritis in kids, particularly some of our younger kids, can be a little bit difficult. Um, some of the things that we look for uh, is certainly complaints and symptoms of the pain like I had mentioned, and there's also this feeling of joint stiffness. So many types of joint pain occur more with you. So say you have an injury and 
it hurts after you've been running or it hurts after you've been jumping. However, inflammatory arthritis is oftentimes different. So the joints hurt more after a period of rest. So when you wake up in the morning or after you've been sitting for a while. And then you have more of the soreness that kind of works out as you get more active. And that can really be a hallmark of the difference in the type of pain that you get with inflammatory arthritis versus other reasons to have joint pain. Joint swelling is also in something that we look for if it's in the absence of an injury, and particularly if it's in multiple joints. And one of the characteristic places or the concerning places that we look for joint swelling is in the fingers, because it can be a very destructive arthritis. And typically there, we call them sausage digits, which, well, I don't love the term for the imagery, but I think it helps parents to understand what they're looking for. And it's just a really thick, swollen digit around the joints. And that can be a pretty good sign of uh, arthritis that involves the hands. Yeah, that's an important distinction. I know I have three boys, so I think they're active all the time. If they were sore, I'd probably think it was just from being active. Right, and it can be very difficult, again, depending on the age of the kid. You know, our younger kids, just they can't express things very well. Mm -hmm. And we may just see that they're slowing down, that they may just not be keeping up, that they may take themselves out out of activities. Um, They may just limp. You know, they might not actually be able to tell you that something hurts. And so it's important to talk about because parents are oftentimes the first that are going to bring this to the attention of the medical professional. And so there's a pretty profound statement in the guidelines that indicates psoriasis has as much impact on quality of life as diabetes, epilepsy, and atopic dermatitis. Is this statement true? And what's the potential impact on mental health for youth with psoriasis? I do think that this statement is true. I think that chronic disease in general in children is something that um, has a profound impact on their lives. And psoriasis has shown up in these studies when they look at quality of life index in children and their families as having a really profound impact. And I think those particular ones were chosen because we understand the impact of diabetes epilepsy on uh, patients. And the research is showing that psoriasis can be as important to their quality of life. The importance is understanding then that our treatment and the way that we're thinking about the patients really has to take that into account. So if it has such a profound impact and we're potentially under treating, well, we're missing an opportunity to intervene. The great thing and one of the difficult things about taking care of pediatric patients is that their mental health and their development is really dependent on a lot of what we do in the office. Uh, and I think it's just very important to consider this profound impact that it has and to screen for any problems, to consider when they might need referral because their quality of life has impacted their mental health, and then also, again, to make sure that our treatments are matching how important that the disease is for their life. So follow-up question on that. Uh, what are the symptoms of anxiety and or depression that a parent should notice in their child or teen, and what should they do when those symptoms occur? So here again, the symptoms are very dependent on the age of the child. I think in general, uh, the kids may show at younger ages withdrawal from activities. A school-age child might not be able to express to you that they're sad or they're feeling anxious, but they might just stop doing some of the things that they like. They might have somatic complaints. They might say, every time it's time to go to soccer practice where they have to put on shorts. They say, well, I have a headache, I have a stomachache, and they can't go. The changes in behavior, I think, are really important for a parent to look for. Just try to understand what's going on. Try to understand if that is something that they're even noticing, a child that is getting depressed may not know that they're withdrawing from their friends, may not know that they're not showing enjoyment in their activities. They might not be realizing it, 
they're just not feeling well. They're just not feeling great about themselves. Certainly what the kids say to us is very important. I think being very attuned. Oftentimes in my office, try to start some of these conversations because it is very important for kids to understand that they have safe adults that they can talk to. And I think that's important for caregivers of pediatric patients to know is that you may need to call on help. You may need to take your child to healthcare provider to ask these questions to help be involved. That can be your primary care provider. That can be another provider that they have a really good relationship with. And in many cases, particularly if there's a high level of concern, if you've heard statements from your child that make you really worried about their well-being, or certainly if there's any concern that their depression is really affecting them, for instance, in their school performance, in other areas even as far as potentially suicidal thoughts, then getting to a qualified mental health provider uh, immediately is very important. So switching gears here, uh, let's talk now about treatment options since that plays a huge role in controlling psoriasis. What are the choices and potential side effects? So the amount of psoriasis and where it occurs are really the two first things that you're thinking of when prescribing a treatment. Age and again, really how the child feels about the psoriasis are important considerations as well. So for instance, if we have a limited area of psoriasis that seems to be easily treatable or at least easily accessible with a topical medication, then that's a great starting point. If you look at a child and we have a very large body surface area and you just know that it's not practical, to be covering that just with topical treatment or the kid is very severely affected. We have kids that walk into our office and they're not going to school. They feel terrible. They just, they hurt. Then that really informs our treatment decision because we want to want to be more aggressive. We're going to really want to think about what can we do to get the kid better quickly. In specific regards to topical treatments, we do have a number of topicals to choose from. I generally sort of think about these in categories of topical corticosteroids, which really are the mainstay over topical treatment for psoriasis, and then our non-steroid options. So topical corticosteroids really have a role in almost every treatment plan, because even if you're on another treatment, they can help get quick control of the disease. They can help with problem areas as well. The issue with topical corticosteroids is you've got to be very location selective. So a topical steroid that may be appropriate for the face or for the genital area may not work and may not be strong enough for something on the body. Whereas vice versa, a stronger steroid medication that we make it for the hands or a problem area of the body would be inappropriate and potentially unsafe for treatment on the face. Another consideration with topical steroids is going to be the age. So an infant might require different treatments than an older child. And so I think that's important too for families to understand because a treatment they may have gotten years and years ago, in addition to being expired, might not be the right treatment anymore. And that's by keeping a good relationship with your healthcare providers and making sure you're getting the right treatment based on the disease at that point is really important. The uh, non-steroid topical treatments come in a few varieties as well. So one is called the topical calcineurin inhibitors. Pemacrolimus and tacrolimus would be two examples of this. These are appropriate treatments for areas that we cannot use topical steroids as effectively because of concerns for side effects. So oftentimes,
oftentimes are used in general area and the face where stronger topical steroids may be less favorable. They can have a really great role though in treating those areas and can be important for maintenance treatment. Topical retinoids are another treatment that are off-label used for pediatrics but are approved for use in adults with psoriasis. They indicated for very thick plaques of psoriasis and can be important, although can cause some irritation as well. And then the final category that I think oftentimes pediatric patients use are the topical vitamin D analogs, calcipatriene and calcipatriol. These can be used either on their own or more commonly in conjunction with topical corticosteroids to help good maintenance control and to use in areas where you may be limited by the side effects of long-term use of topical corticosteroids. So what about phototherapy? How effective is that in the use of the pediatric population? It seems like a light booth could be kind of scary for younger children. Are there any tips that you can offer to make it easier or more accepted? Phototherapy, I think, is a really fantastic option and it's a treatment that I still use very frequently. Some of the issues with phototherapy are access to it. So you may not live anywhere near a site that offers phototherapy. And specifically, the type of phototherapy that's most commonly used in pediatric psoriasis is something called narrow band UVB therapy. So this is mostly an in-office treatment where you go into the office offering the phototherapy two to three times a week and stand in a booth that emits this very controlled type of light phototherapy. There are options oftentimes for home treatment as well and that is something if you're doing well on it your provider can oftentimes transition you to so you can do that in the comfort of your own home. The phototherapy it is very safe, it can be very effective, And it's a good long-term option for pediatric patients as well because of the safety of it. As you mentioned, though, our younger kids may have some difficulties complying with phototherapy. I think that this really depends on the child. So I really have a good conversation with the parents if we're thinking about doing phototherapy in a child, particularly under the age of five, but even sometimes a little bit older than that, to really kind of understand whether they think that the child can be talked to, they can understand, and that they can safely do the phototherapy. So they have to stand relatively calm in the same area in the booth, and they do have to wear eye protection. It really varies from center to center, so some centers, I have to say, are better and have more experience with kids, down to maybe age two or three even, if the child is cooperative that you can do phototherapy. And I think those centers, what they do really well is they do a lot of pre-preparation. So before the first treatment, they really pair with the family to talk about the treatment a lot. They might do some kind of games around it where they get into the booth, they get out of the booth, where before the treatment even starts, they're making it seem less scary. They're making it fun. I think it's very important to introduce the child, the younger children, to the photo booth before the first treatment. And that way, when they go home in preparation to the first treatment, the family can continue a conversation about really what's going to happen and what the expectations are and what the the kid um, then can expect of the treatment. So there's a lot of the uncertainty and a lot of that anxiety around it has already been dealt with. Simple things like playing music can be helpful. Imagery, you know, talking to the kid about, oh, this is like you're at the beach or this is um, like you're in a spaceship. You know, kids come up with all sorts of stories about what their phototherapy booth is, and that can really help reduce the anxiety of the treatment as well. That's cute. I love that idea. So for the 
uh, older children, I know when I was in high school, tanning booths were a big thing. What would you say to teens who may be tempted to use tanning booths to control their psoriasis? So narrow band phototherapy is controlled medical light. So this is a well-tested, well-regulated device that we know exactly what is coming out of the machine and exactly what the effects on the skin are. Tanning, while may help with the psoriasis, may have more health consequences. And the problem becomes that we don't always know what those downstream consequences are gonna be. However, what we do absolutely know is that exposure to tanning beds, even as much as one time, can lead to an increased risk of skin cancer. Whereas with narrow band UVB therapy, we do not see that same association. So it's really strongly encouraged that if you think light treatment is gonna be the right treatment for you, to do so either in an office with the narrow band booth in the office or in your home with one of the regulated devices that are prescription units that provide narrow band UVB. So in addition to topicals and phototherapy, other treatment options include non-biologic systemic treatments or biologics. What would prompt you to shift to either of the a systemic or a biologic treatment? So there is the child that you meet in your office for the first time. They have severe disease, they're severely affected, that you say, I know by experience that getting this under control with topical therapy and then may or may not have access to phototherapy is going to be slow and is going to be very difficult where topical treatment might take hours to apply and still may not be as effective. So that's one population of patients where you may be moving to a systemic treatment. And I can think about it the same, I say, do we need to move on to a systemic treatment? Have we moved past either what I think topicals or phototherapy will be appropriate for? And then once we have the discussion about systemic treatment, start to think about the non-biologic versus the biologic options. The other child that gets to a systemic treatment, non-biologic or biologic, would be one that has failed at the other treatment that you've tried. So you may have escalated topical care and you cannot get good control of the disease either because uh, it's not effective or because they're having side effects from that or they keep getting new areas of disease that you're just not reaching the desired endpoint with. That's the kid that you also want to start talking about systemic treatment. In the consideration of systemic treatment, I think it's really important to understand that not all areas of the body affected by psoriasis are the same. So a body surface area is an important calculation, important consideration we have. That's just the percentage of the body that's affected. And so we're talking about moderate psoriasis, severe psoriasis, mild psoriasis. Oftentimes that is based on body surface area. More coverage, then it's a more severe category. However, there's some areas that can be exceptionally symptomatic, or the, although are not large body surface areas. For instance, the hands and the feet. So the involvement may only involve the hands and the feet, but that's exceptionally limiting. You may have difficulties walking, might have difficulties writing, shaking hands, touching other people. And that might be a patient that, although has a small body surface area, you may move to systemic treatment sooner with. Uh, so what are the treatments in these classes that are used for treating youth? Sure. So think about systemic treatment as non-biologic systemic treatments and biologic systemic treatments. So the non-biologic systemic treatments, these tend to be medications that have been around for a while, may have multiple uses, are used for psoriasis in pediatric patients and adult patients. There are three main options that are widely used. Methotrexate, 
acetretin and cyclosporin. These medications tend to come as either liquids or pills, different dosing schedules with them, and may be used for a variety of other diseases as well. Biologic treatments, I think of them as immunomodulator treatments, and at this point, we really have two approved biologic treatments in pediatric patients. So Atanercept, which is approved for ages four and up, and Ustekinumab, which is approved for ages 12 and up. These medications tend to be injectable medications, the biologic medications. And can any treatments be used in combination with other treatment options in youth? So actually almost all of our treatments are used in combination. So very frequently a patient will be on a systemic treatment and will be given a topical routine as well. Particularly if you're choosing a systemic treatment that might be a little slower, may take a little longer to reach peak efficacy, but getting a good topical routine and treating hotspot or problematic areas is going to be very important in your treatment routine. Sometimes we actually even use some treatments such as acetretin in conjunction with something like phototherapy. And then systemic medications may be used together as well. So for instance, some of the approved biologic medications may be used in combination with a traditional systemic medication to give better efficacy and better treatment options as well. So in closing, what do you feel is in the future for the management and treatment of youth with psoriasis? I think this is a really exciting time for me personally to be involved in the care of patients with psoriasis because I see so many options. I see so much out there. Over the last 20 plus years, the field has been very stagnant for a while. We really were watching the adult world and the adult patients get all of these new options and they simply weren't available sometimes to the pediatric populations. Now, we do use off-label treatments, and so there are kids that have been treated with some of the newer medications, but in terms of having that information to know in a large group of kids, this is safe, and this is effective, and this is the patient that it's appropriate for, we're just in this time where we're going to have so much more to offer people. And it's going to be very exciting to have those conversations with patients to say, what are your goals? What is the goal? of your skin. Do we want to get it clear? Do we want to have less shots? Do we want to have less lab work? You know, what? how can we tailor that treatment plan to what your goals are and to who you are as a patient, to what other comorbidities or issues you may be dealing with? We're going to have those tools in our toolbox soon. And in addition, there's so much research and there's so much interest in the scientific community as well that we're starting to understand and learn a lot more about pediatric psoriasis to understand the importance of pediatric onset disease and how that impacts health overall, how that can help us prevent some later comorbidities, um, and how that really helps us to take better care of the patients that we're seeing in our office. Well, thank you, Dr. Winley, for taking time to be on SoundBites today. You provided such an in-depth look at the AAD and NPF guidelines of care for the management and treatment of psoriasis in pediatric patients. I'm sure our listeners will find the information very helpful. Thank you so much for having me. If you're a parent searching for information and resources to help your child with psoriasis and or psoriatic arthritis, visit our spot, the Foundation's website for youth at psoriasis.org forward slash r hyphen spot. Order a welcome kit, access resources to help educate school staff, watch educational webcasts just for you, the parent, or link to appropriate podcasts and more. Our spot truly is the spot for you and your children to learn more about psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Thank you for taking time to listen to Sound Bites. On behalf of the National Psoriasis Foundation, we appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you. If you have suggestions for topics or comments, 
contact us at podcast at psoriasis.org. Join us again on January 7th for our anniversary episode for a special look at lifestyle changes with Dr. Ronald Prasik. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.